As you know, Keith and Marla, pray for them as they are in Florida. They just got there yesterday. Marla's sister passed away, uh, and Marla's sister has been sick with cancer for some time now, and uh, she went home to be with the Lord. Wonderful lady of faith. Talked to her last week. She knew where she was going. She loves the Lord. Her daddy, they just, Marla's dad just passed away about a month ago, and they had a funeral in Florida for him. And um, just pray for the family. And uh, they're doing well. God's grace is sufficient. And uh, just pray for them. I I know they would love to be here today. I heard Paige is here today. And uh, we're just uh, so glad she's here. And welcome her in the service this morning up from Georgia. And uh, Michael uh, had to go away on military leave for several days. And so he's here today. Uh, She's here today. So we're glad to have her here. They're going to be having a little... A little grandchild here pretty soon. We're happy for all of them. That's going to be great. Life changes when you have grandkids, right? All right? Oh, man, then you really age. Oh, you really age. How fun. How much fun. And we want you to pray for Marie Wood. Pray for her and uh, just continue to keep her in your prayers. And uh, she's been going through treatments also for cancer. Pray for her. Uh, sweet, sweet lady of our church. And Jim, is good to see you, Jim, here today. And our prayers are, are really strong for Marie, that God would just continue to lift her up and help her. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord today. And our text is going to be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And I'm speaking on the subject, heaven's greatest party heaven's greatest party. We've been talking about the five purposes of the church. Why does the church exist? First of all, the church exists for worship. We've been preaching several sermons on worship over the past couple weeks. And uh, the second purpose of the church is evangelism. Evangelism is the, the commission of the church to tell other people about Jesus Christ. And then the third one is discipleship, that is teaching people in the ways of God, in the principles of the word. And then the fourth one is ministry, this is serving other people. And then the fifth is fellowship, that's just bonding together as God's people. So those are the five purposes of the church, and we're going to kind of go through each one of these purposes of the church, and we're going to kind of preach a sermon on them to help uh, bring us to the very central focus of why we exist as a church family. So this morning, I want to speak on the second purpose, and that is evangelism, and I've entitled this sermon, Heaven's Greatest Party. Heaven's Greatest Party. The text is in Matthew chapter 22, and verses 1 down through verse 14 is our text this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your great love, Lord, that you bestowed on us, you poured on us, and strengthened us with your grace. And now, Father, as we look into the word of truth, I pray that you would build us up in the most holy faith, and we'll be sure to thank you and praise you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Evangelism. It's a very interesting word. In fact, uh, I've been in church a long time. My dad was a preacher. And so the word evangelism is very much a, a buzzword or a church word that, is, that many are, are familiar with. And some that are not familiar with church, it's, it's kind of a new term to them. But evangelism is the sending out the simple, clear message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all about the message of the gospel. Now, I believe in so many ways we have made evangelism much more complicated than what God intended it to be. 
Somehow we have turned evangelism into some type of a burden instead of something that we should all be excited about and thoroughly enjoying to be a part of. Sometimes we think that God expects us to go out and sell some kind of religious mumbo-jumbo or something about denominational stuff that we don't really know what we're talking about, instead of just giving that clear, simple message of the invitation to receive Christ as Savior. Now, because of so many people, they have the wrong concept of evangelism, it's easy for them to fall into prey Uh, and use fear and guilt to pressure people into premature decisions that lack understanding and faith. They have a tendency to want to pry open the souls of men with driving force, attempting to buttonhole people into the kingdom of God. I remember an old guy that used to come up to me all the time. He goes, I got another notch in my belt for Jesus. And I used to think, what? A notch in your belt? You know, it's not like he's selling Avon or something. But, and I thought to myself, you know, the the message of the gospel and telling people about the gospel is nothing about marking how many people uh, that you lead to the Lord with a notch in your belt. No wonder we shy away from the idea of evangelism. Because we can't fathom twisting the arms of men until they cry uncle and say yes to heaven. Now, I have been through all kinds of evangelism courses, evangelistic courses, and I have seen and heard it all, believe me. But if evangelism is the second purpose of the church, then what is God's concept of evangelism? And how does God expect us to engage in this important ministry of the New Testament church and actually enjoy the work of evangelism? Now, there are three basic cornerstone thoughts I want to share with you this morning that I hope and pray that you just kind of wrap your arms around and to embrace this subject of heaven's greatest party, evangelism. The first big thought I want to share with you this morning, and that is the father's celebration over his son. Now, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Evangelism is like giving out blessed invitations to a royal party. It's, it's the joy that we have of telling people that God loves them and God wants them to partake in the greatest event of all mankind, and that is to be birthed into the family of God and to experience God's celebration over his children. Now, one of the most joyful and happiest times of celebration is a wedding reception. You've been there. Uh, It's where everyone celebrates the union of a bride and a groom. In fact, in Jewish days, it was customary that the family would set apart seven days to have a celebration. They would open up their home, and they would set up tables, and, and people would come from all over, and pilgrims would come, and everyone would gather together. And it was the family's responsibility to provide plenty of drink and plenty of good food. And it was a week-long celebration. It's where all the families involved got involved in celebrating not only the bride and groom, but celebrating the union of these two families together. 
Now, the best of food is prepared during that week. In fact, that week, the banquet room is decorated with a festive look that gives an awesome environment. Special reservations are made for the family and friends who they love dearly. Everything is ready to provide a brilliant celebration atmosphere. It's a continual party celebrating love. That's what it is. And the planning is complete, the labor and the work has been done, the resources have been spent, and now everything is ready for the greatest celebration ever. Now to receive an invitation for this great celebration is something that every man should take very seriously. Back in those days, if you ignored this invitation, in many ways you can easily insult the family. It was something where if you got an invitation, it's because that invitation is a way of expressing that you are very important to the one uh, that invited you. And they desire for you to be a part of one of the happiest days of their lives. So to receive an invitation was really weighty. It was very significant. It's something that you put as a number one priority. You made sure you didn't go to work that week. You, you took a week of vacation. You made sure that, that you were there and you were, you're going to bring a gift and you're going to join in the happy experience of this celebration. And Jesus said, this is what, the he- what heaven's like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It is a great place of celebration. Jesus said that this certain king, as he shares this parable, uh, develops this wedding feast for his son. And now the wedding celebration of the king's son would have been a very significant event for the subjects of the king's kingdom. The news about this celebration would have reverberated throughout the land where the king reigned. And it was really important at a royal wedding that you show up. It's like getting a letter from Buckingham Palace and saying, hey, you're invited to the prince and the princess's wedding. What a, man, we would go and we'd find the best clothes that we have and and we would do everything in our power to show up on time and to be there with the right spirit and to enjoy every festive um, organizational plan that is designed for all the family and friends. So because... The king was inviting everyone that he loved to honor and celebrate this very happy, joyful event in his life. It was very important for people to realize that this invitation was very, very important. In fact, God the Father celebrates his son because of his perfect eternal love for him. God the Father has been planning and preparing, and he is presenting a party for a lifetime for all of those who choose to accept his son, Jesus Christ, and to celebrate in the greatest union of all time, and that is the church of Jesus Christ marrying his blessed son. This is a celebration. This is a celebration of the father's love for his son. I was reading one time about a, on the wealthy side of Oxford, England, there lived a billionaire named Duke Edward IV. Uh, he suffered greatly since the death of his son, Edward V. And because this son of his was the last living heir to his fortune. 
After the death of his son, this man fell into a pit of grief. He would go into the conservatory room in his castle, and he would just sit in one of those great big chairs, staring up at this most beautiful oil painting of his son that passed away. And he would sit there for days and weeks and months, grieving over the loss of his son. It was a beautiful painting. Duke Edward IV put it in his will at the time of his death that his total estate and every possession in his castle should be sold at a public auction. He knew that his son was the last living heir and that he knew that all of his things that he had accumulated from his inheritance and all the things that he had accumulated in life was now going to be placed into the hands of strangers. So he wrote out a will with careful instructions for this auction to take place. And it wasn't long, it was about two years later, the father, Duke Edward IV, passed away. And the date for the auction was set and all of England was invited to attend. And that day came and the prominent crowd came from everywhere. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people that were standing out in front of this mansion. And they were getting ready to make a bid for the Duke's final earthly fortunes. According to the Duke Edward's will, the auctioneer was instructed to present the first item to be auctioned off, which was a huge oil painting of his son that he used to hang in the conservatory room. It was a huge oil painting. The auctioneer started the bid at $1,000. Who give me $1,000 for the Duke's oil painting of his son? But there was no bid. There was no interest. It got quiet. It was kind of embarrassing. Again, who give $1,000 for this beautiful oil painting of Duke Edward's IV's son, of, of Edward V, again? So the auctioneer lowered the price. He went lower and lower until finally an old nurse raised her hand and she said, I'll give $300. It's the best that she could give because she was very poor. It went uncontested. And the oil painting went to this poor old nurse, the painting of Duke Edward's IV's son. As the painting was handed over to the poor nurse, the auctioneer calmly looked over the crowd that was gathered on the front lawn of the Duke's house, and he calmly looks at the crowd and said, today this concludes our auction for Duke Edward IV. The crowd went into an uproar. They thought to themselves, we haven't even begun the auction, and you're telling us that the auction is over? We traveled miles and miles to get here, and now only one picture is sold? The auctioneer loudly stated, it is stated in the will of Duke Edward IV, the one who cherishes my son enough to pay the highest bid for his oil painting wins my total estate. The poor nurse won billions to her surprise. God the Father, listen carefully, chooses to bless the ones who choose his Son as Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Far greater than billions of dollars, the greatest riches are in store for those who choose Jesus Christ. God the Father loves his Son, and God the Father chooses all of those precious people who choose Jesus Christ as their Savior. The greatest riches are in store for those who choose him. Money cannot be compared to the eternal riches in store 
for them. The Lord has prepared a place of celebration for all of those who trust in Jesus. Now I have learned this in my life, and the older I get and the closer I get to the gate of heaven, I begin to realize that I need to know something about this place of celebration. I need to know something about this place that God has prepared for me. And soon and very soon, one day, I will be in the presence of God, and one day I will experience everything my loved ones who have gone on before me are experiencing at this present time. It is a place of absolute glory. The disciples were worried about their future. And and Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Then he says this powerful statement, I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven is a prepared place for all of his saints. It is a prepared place for all of those in this lifetime who say, yes, I choose Jesus Christ as my God, as my Savior. I receive the invitation of God's great party and celebration. Now, there are no brochures telling of its beauty. There, there are no travel videos on YouTube that can show you the beauty of heaven. There's no scenic photos on Facebook that you can actually see what heaven looks like. In fact, if you want to know anything about heaven, you've got to go to what the Bible gives us, descriptions of a vast and a shimmering place. In fact, the Bible gives us basically 10 clues about this glorious place of celebration, this place where God's people enter into a realm of, the, of heaven's greatest party. In fact, nothing, there's nothing burdensome about giving a clear invitation to a place like heaven. That's what evangelism is. Evangelism is, is you know what? There's going to be a great party. This king has invited all of us to come. And this king takes how you respond to his invitation very seriously. But oh, my friend, for you to say yes to Jesus and to trust him is the greatest investment that you'll ever make in this life because you're going to enter in to the most blissful, most powerful, most beautiful experience of your earthly life. Now, there's 10 things I want to share with you about heaven. Now, I can share common things with you about heaven is a place of no pain, is a no place of no death. I can share all of those things with you, and you, you know that. But I want to share with you some things that the Bible teaches that are very personal about heaven. I want to share with you, and I do a lot of reading about people who, who know the Lord, who die, and, and actually have been brought back and talk about their experiences on the other side. Uh, and I, want to, I just want to just look at what the Scripture says about the fabulous place of celebration that God is preparing for you, what you've got to look forward to as a child of God. The first thing the Bible teaches us is heaven is a place of brilliant perpetual light. It is a place of light. It is a place, as the Bible says in Revelation 22, the city does not need the sun nor the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. One thing I've read about the testimony of people, and they said there's something about Heaven that is this blazing light that just happens to go through you and in you. There's something about this light of heaven that is, that is alive with power. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus is called the light of men in John chapter 1. 
In fact, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation portray Jesus as the light of life, eternal life. In fact, a vision of heaven is presented uh, literally as a diamond with a light beaming out of it called the new Jerusalem. So this light is also called, Jesus is referred to as the bright and the morning star. So one of the first amazing things that God has prepared in heaven for us is this place of perpetual light, no night, no darkness, no evening, but it's a place where this light gives life. It's the most amazing thing. When you read about Jesus being the light of the world, it gives us a whole new significance of what the glory of heaven is all about. Now, we'll go out and see the sunshine today, and and the sun is nice, but let me share something with you. The sun out there is nothing compared to the sun of the living God. The brilliant light of God. One thing you're going to be amazed, I believe with all my heart, is when you walk through the portals of heaven is to notice the light that brings every vivid color into being. The second thing, in heaven, there's no such thing as the pressure of time. All God's people said. It is no, their time is not a matter in the heavens because the former things are passed away like your alarm clock. And all God's people said, chuck that thing as you go to heaven. Amen. Chuck it. Don't anyone put an alarm clock in my casket, please. There's no such thing as the pressure of time. Now, this is hard for us to explain because our lives on earth are governed by clocks and schedules. But in heaven, there are no schedules, no pressures to be somewhere at a certain time. There's only this wonderful, instantaneous sense of wholeness and completeness and this peace and love. It's like you live in the moment. There is, there's not this pressure. There is eternity that you begin to live So in heaven, there's no such thing as the pressure of time. Here's a third clue about heaven. In heaven, you discover who you really are. I have people tell me all the time, because, you know, I I really would like to know who I am. And and if if you study the scriptures, you can find who you are in Jesus Christ, because if you're in Christ, your full description of who you are is in him. I like what what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see through a glass darkly. In other words, we look at eternal things and it's like a, it's a tinted glass. We can't make sense of it. We're not there yet. But then when we get there, Paul says face to face. He says now we only have a little bit of knowledge now. We only only have a little bit in bits and pieces of heaven here. But when we get to heaven, we will know even as also that we or I am known. In heaven, there's an instant download of information about yourself and who you are in eternity. We get a far deeper self-awareness that the collection or the sketchy collection of our hopes and dreams and fears and scars that define us on earth, we find God gives us a new name written down in glory. We have a new name, a a new life that God establishes on the other side, and he reveals our nature and our identity in the heavens. I think that's why it's a place of great security and great love. You know who you really are. And then, fourthly, the fourth clue about the greatness of heaven. In heaven, you experience the abundant life. Now, we we experience a little bit of good life here and a little bit there. 
We'll go to a restaurant and man, you know, this is a great place to eat and sit there and after the meal's over, you're like, man, I should never come here. Gain five pounds, ruin my diet. And we'll find a little joy. We look forward to this and we look forward to that and those fleeting things. We, we consume so much, but in this life, we are constantly trying to fill the hole in our life and trying to fill ourselves with some kind of significance and happiness. But in heaven, you experience that constant state of the abundant life. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And he is talking about our final place of redemption in heaven. Instead of having five senses in heaven, we'll probably have over 500 senses and you experience everything in a completely new and deeper way than we used to experience here on earth. Life will become much more vivid and much more exciting in heaven. The brilliant brightness that surrounds you in heaven is is more than just light. It is something that infuses constant life into you. And this light is the very essence and breath of God. Something that you experience with all of your senses. And you become one with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that Jesus says, All that we might be one in him in John 17. God's God's light is not something you just see, taste, and feel, but it's something that you experience this vibrant life force with every fiber of your being. And this light goes in you and through you, and the breath and the life of God brings life to its zenith moment. No wonder heaven is a great place. Heaven also, number five, is a place of complete knowledge. It is a place of complete knowledge Ephesians 3.10 says, to the intent or to the purpose of God, the powers in heavenly places will be made known to us and will be given the manifold wisdom of God. This is one of the most amazing truths about heaven. Everything in heaven will just make sense to us. There's nothing confusing in heaven or anything that leaves you wondering about what's going on. Why am I in this strange place? In fact, before you get there, God imparts into you perfect knowledge. You may think you have questions for God now, but when you get in heaven, you won't. In heaven, before you even know it, you have all the answers to everything you might have ever thought about asking God. It's given to you at that moment. There's this sensation of understanding. Instantaneously, you'll be infused with a beautiful sense of knowing That's why when you get to heaven, there's no strangers because God will put something inside of you that you'll know everyone. People ask me all the time, when we get to heaven, Pastor Tim, will I know my loved ones? Of course you will. The Bible says we bear the image of the earthly here in this life, but in the heavens, the earthly image stays with us, but it's perfected in the heavens. You'll know who I am and I'll know who you are, but I will know you better in heaven than I know you here. You'll know me better. There will be this transparency of knowledge. We'll know each other. Intimacy will be far greater. And if you have a great marriage here, I want you to know something, that there is no marriage in heaven, but in heaven you won't need marriage because there will be this infusion of intimacy in the lives of all of us. We'll be so knit together perfectly in Christ. There is a place of perpetual happiness There will be nothing you will ever need to learn about God or 
or heaven once you're there. You'll know everything and you will feel nothing but this indescribable sense of standing in the presence of God's love. You see, heaven completes our understanding and knowledge, which is beyond our human comprehension now. But when we get to heaven, we will be absolutely overcome with the love of God. And we won't be baffled by the incredible things that will be happening around us. He will complete us in heaven. And we won't feel any need to ask God anything except for the overwhelming need just to fall down at his feet and to praise him. And the sixth thing about the glory of heaven, and that is heaven is a place of complete surrender and worship to God. Revelation 1, 17 says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You see, when we become aware that we are in the presence of God, we will have this overwhelming urge to bow and to throw ourselves at his feet and just worship him, ascribe worthy and praise to the one who redeemed us. When we wake up in heaven, we'll be completely surrendered to his greatness and turn ourselves over to him in every possible way to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because in heaven, Jesus Christ is the central figure of all worship and all praise. The seventh thing about heaven and why it's so great is heaven is our familiar home with Jesus Christ. It is our familiar home. Hebrews 12, 22 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. I found that you don't just go to heaven, you return to heaven. In heaven, it's not as much as meeting God for the first time as we are recognizing him. And I think the reason heaven is so comfortable when we get there is the fact like, I've been here before. Because you've got to remember that we were formed by the breath of God. Hmm. Heaven won't feel like a new or strange place to us. It will be like, I'm home. I'm finally home. It's taking a hand and finding it God's. A breathing new air and finding it celestial. Finding I'm finally home. That's one of the most beautiful, comforting truths about heaven, that when you get there, it's all familiar to you. It is like you are remembering it instead of experiencing it for the first time. In every possible way, heaven feels just like home. That's why it's a place of great celebration, because it's the place where God has designed you to be all along. This is the place where, where you started. This is your heavenly home. It will be a precious, exciting moment. And when we go, I think all of us will have this longing and desire to stay with Christ and by his side forever and ever. And then number eight, the eighth thing about the, the, the marvelous place, a celebration of heaven, and that is the magnificence of heaven is beyond description. In fact, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 2.9, but as it is written in the book of Isaiah, I have not seen, neither has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. 
It hasn't even entered in your mind. Listen, you, you have no idea how fantastic heaven's going. Listen, if God can make you fearfully and wonderfully, he can take and create eyes and a brain, and he can create a body and put us in a beautiful world. Listen, can you only imagine where God creates a place called his own dwelling place and creates a special place for you to dwell with him forever? Can you imagine how magnificent and wonderful the God of life prepares for you? Heaven is almost impossible to describe. I'm standing up here now going, how in the world can I describe this place? I'm always frustrated by how inadequate human words describe the magnificence of heaven. We try to use words like brilliant and dazzling and beautiful and amazing. And and those words that we might try to use to describe a possibly a, a, a movie or a feeble painting or some fragile art piece, those words just don't cut it. You see, because heaven is far more lucid and real and intense than anything we can experience on earth. So it's understandable that we don't have words to describe it. John, when he, he got, he, God took him to the third heaven and he got a chance to see heaven and he came back and he said, I, I don't know how, to, there's no words to describe it. Daniel saw heaven. He looked in and he saw the land of heaven. He saw the city, the new Jerusalem, and he saw all of the great things of God. And he came back and said, there are no words. It's too magnificent. All I can do is ask you to embrace the biblical descriptions of heaven and imagine how utterly magnificent heaven is in your own mind. Then ask you to take what you're picturing in your mind and multiply it by 10 million might give you a little sketchy idea about the greatness of heaven. And then the ninth thing about heaven that the Bible tells us, that heaven is where God refreshes the hearts of men. I really like this one. He refreshes the hearts of men. In this world, life is a struggle. We go through so much. Some of us, we have loved ones who have died, they've gone through cancer, and we're walking through the struggle and the strain and the, 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 the anxiety and the worries of financial worries and everything kinds of bear down on us and worrying about family getting along, worrying about this problem at work. Worry, there's so many things that plague us. But in heaven, the Bible says in Isaiah 57, 15, I love this verse, the high and lofty one who lives in the heavens which is God. He says, I live in the high and the holy place with those humble spirits who are contrite. He says, I restore, I love this, I restore the crushed spirit of the humble. I revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. You see, in heaven, God exchanges the stressed, anxiety-filled, weary heart with peace and joy and contentment and eternal happiness. God has a way of rebuilding and restoring the mind and soul and heart in heaven. We are completely healed from all the scarred struggles and the emotional distresses from our earthly life. And we're brought into that place of perpetual celebration with Christ forever. And I love that verse, and I, I quote it all the time. In the presence of the Lord, there's the fullness, the, the fullness, the fullness of joy. Fullness. It's perpetual. 
When you're in heaven, you don't, you don't have a morose moment. You don't have a depressed moment. In heaven, you, you don't have a moment where you just feel, oh, you feel some kind of anxiety. You, in heaven, you live in a perpetual state of the fullness of joy. Can you say that word with me? Fullness of joy. Say it again. Fullness of joy. Don't you love that? I've been experienced full joy. Mm, let me think. I got married. I had, I was, I had a lot of joy. Uh, I got my first car. That lasted until I wrecked it a week later. Um, I had a little bit of joy here, and a little bit, short-lived. But can you imagine living in a perpetual? Who in the world wouldn't want to go to heaven? Who in the world wouldn't want to tell someone about such a wonderful place? Heaven is where God refreshes the hearts and souls of men. And then, tenth, heaven is the home of God, the blessed trinity. I can't, I can't, I get chill bumps. How would you like to go to heaven, the place where God himself dwells? John 5, 1 John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. God dwells with his people. That's the place God has prepared for us. He's invited all of those who would be willing to accept his gracious invitation. Who wouldn't be excited to tell someone about such an incredible place called heaven? It would be a sin to keep that joyous invitation to ourselves. Right now, God has prepared the place in heaven, and now he has sent us as messengers to tell people about this party that has been prepared. And the Bible says in our second point, the Father, in, the father is insulted by being rejected. To turn down such a glorious invitation is to insult the Father. Matthew chapter 22, 3 and 5 says, But when the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify these who were, who were invited. But they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, The feast has been prepared. The bulls and the fatted cattle have been killed. And everything is ready. Come to the banquet. Come to this place called heaven. Come to this place of celebration. Come to this place where God dwells. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way, one to his farm, another to his business. Four things. They refused to come. Secondly, they ignored the invitation. Thirdly, they went their own way. Fourth, they insulted and they killed the messengers. I found that evangelism is about giving a clear invitation to God's glorious celebration, God's party, and then leaving the response of men with him. I've shared the gospel with many people. I have shared the gospel with people dying on their deathbed. And they've looked me right in the face and they said, well, I didn't need it while I was living. I don't need it while I'm dying. And with tears in my eyes, I said, you're getting ready to go in eternity. You need Christ. And I've had to walk away and I had to realize they have created a world of suffering for themselves 
by rejecting the invitation of the King of kings and Lord of lords. But I've got to leave that with God. Something wants me to go back and to shake that person at the point of death. You don't understand how horrible hell, hell is. You don't know how sweet heaven is. I want, but I have to understand, I've got to respect the fact that everybody has a choice. All those who choose Jesus Christ get into the party. All of those who say no, miss, miss heaven. And then thirdly, the Father's grace is extended to the unworthy. Jesus went to his own people first, and this is a picture of Jesus going to Israel, inviting them to come to receive him as king and to come to the celebration that he has prepared for them in heaven. But they said, no, we reject you. We, we decide not to receive you. So God says, okay, I want you to go out, messengers, into the highways and byways. I want you to go to people that are willing to receive and to appreciate this message in this invitation, notice that the wedding feast was not canceled. Nine and 10 in Matthew 22 says, now go out into the street corners, invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet was filled with guests. God extends grace to the unworthy and the unlovely. Notice that the wedding feast was not canceled. But it would go on as scheduled, even though ungrateful and foolish chosen men have rejected the greatest celebration of all. The king graciously sends his servants into the highways and the byways to go after the Gentiles, the people who are not the people of God, and to see if they would be willing to come. Invite the lowly, invite the unworthy men to come to my son's wedding feast. And they did. Jesus tells us that they gathered together all of those who were in the poor, those who were poor, broken, stained, and marred, to sit at the king's table. And there were no qualifications. Whosoever will may come. The door was open to all men of all status, all race, all gender. Whoever they may be, wherever they live, if they were found at all, they were gathered in to the table of God's great celebration in heaven. And when it was over, the banquet was filled with our Lord's guest. People who perhaps were beggars and common laborers and sinners and foreigners from outside the king's realm, people who would have never expected that they would be so privileged as to sit at the wedding feast of the son of a king. And yet, because of grace, they are there. And I say to you today, I'm not one of God's chosen people. I'm a Gentile. At one time, I was alienated from God, separated from God, living in darkness, had no idea about the things of God until one day someone sat down and explained to me the glorious love that God had for me and the glorious invitation that he extends to me, even though I was unworthy, unfit, unlovely. And yet in his love for me, even though I was an enemy of God, he extended his grace to me. And I understood this thing about God's forgiveness. And thank God he gave me enough faith to put in him. And at that moment, he received me as his Lord. Received me as I received him as my Lord and my Savior, my God. And he 
birth me right into the family of God. Ephesians 2, 17 and 22, this is what Paul says to the Gentiles. He says this, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him. Now all of us can come through the Father through the same Holy Spirit because what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and you're no longer foreigners. You are now citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets as the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by the Holy Spirit. That's amazing to me. This is a very special wedding feast. Those who were brought in unworthy, unworthy as they seemed, arrive as special guests to the wedding feast only to discover that we're no longer strangers, but now we are the bride of Christ. He has declared us righteous. There's a little phrase in Matthew chapter 22. It says, many are called, but few are chosen. Paul tells us that God desires all men All men to be saved. God loves every human being with the same intensity of love, and he wishes that all may come to him. The Bible says because of that, many are called, but only those men and women who choose to accept the invitation of God's great gift of salvation through Christ are chosen by God the Father to be united with his Son for all eternity. And that number is small in comparison of the souls of men that have disregarded and shunned the invitation from the King of Kings. Few are chosen. Few are chosen. Wow. This invitation extends to you this morning. It is the invitation to heaven. That place I preached about this morning, it is, a, it is an invitation of grace. Many men have said, nope, thank you, and they have shunned it. God says, I've laid an ax to the root, and now go to those who need salvation, who need forgiveness, who need a place called home, Those who are foreigners and strangers can now become part of the family of God. You're saying, how can I receive it? You can't buy your way there. You can't live a perfect life to get there because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. My friend, you can receive God's gift of eternal life by saying, yes, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. Grace is extended to you. All you got to do is say, yes, Lord, I receive your invitation. I accept it. I choose the son. I choose the son like the little nurse who chose the oil painting, who chose the son and received everything. My friend, all that choose the son, God chooses them. This morning, will you choose him? Will you sit there and walk out and say, no, thank you for the invitation. Appreciate it, but I got things to do.
or will you realize the gravity of eternity and realize I cannot sin away this day of grace? Take it. It's yours. Take it by faith. Trust him. With every head bowed and every eye closed.